Welcome to the Velo News Podcast. It's the Velo News Podcast. Uh, I'm Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of Velo News. I'm sitting across from Kaylee Fretz. What's up, Fred? Uh, the Velo News Podcast World Headquarters today has been moved to a small, cute, quaint town in the middle of France. And the, t- the name of that town is... Le Chambon-sur-Lignon. That's right. We could not pronounce the name of the town, so we had to call on our nice waitress to pronounce it. Thank you very much. Waitress, that was very nice of you. Very nice. Um, it is the second rest day of the Tour de France. Kaylee, are you feeling very rested? <laughs> not particularly. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. Nope. Been on the race for, uh, what, two and a half weeks now? A little well, bit before the start. And, and I'm a little, little fatigued. However, however, laundry update. Ooh. Gave it to the uh, the owner of the hotel today. Asked if there was a lavery around, and she just took it from me and did my laundry. Amazing. Are, can we confirm that she did the laundry and didn't just burn your clothing? <laughs> Because entirely possible. That, that may. That's kind of what I would do. Yeah, haven't gotten haven't gotten him back yet. So. Well, Velonies podcast listeners, we will update you on the laundry situation. Kaylee's laundry situation. Kaylee's laundry situation. I since I parachuted in after week one, I'm happy to announce that I still have some uh, untainted clothes. At left least to go. one or two pairs of underwear left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that'll last you a week. Uh, the other thing about rest days is that they're rest days for the riders, not rest days for the journalists. Oh. I think we should complain some more. Yeah. Oh, man, it's so hard. <laughs> By the way, we just had a wonderful dinner here in, what's the name of this town? Le Chambon-sur-Lignon. Thank you, waitress. <laughs> uh, we had a wonderful dinner. The sun's going down. It's very pleasant. We are along the route for stage 16. We are. There's bunting everywhere. Yep. Uh, you know, we, we, we decided we were going to rate the buntings yep. uh, of the Tour de France. This is, it's plastic bunting. It's it's not paper bunting. Yeah. So, you know, some points off for effort. However, there's a lot of it. So I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10 for bunting. Wow, that's very generous. I was yeah. going to go like right around five because, what? boy, Bergerac. Bergerac was, was really good. The the town whose name I cannot remember <laughs> that was the day after Bergerac start town. Yeah, that was top French quality. Town. Yeah, yeah, France town. They had the full um, crepe paper uh, flowers, you like know? the coffee filter flowers that were just everywhere. Wonderful I mean, bunting. Yeah, and that's and that's extra points for effort because you have to physically make those things. These were clearly just purchased at the party store. Yeah. So obviously, listeners of the Villainous podcast are extremely intrigued and by our discussion about they're bunting. blue and yellow. Like well, the tour isn't blue and yellow. Roman Bardet isn't blue and yellow. No. What, what are the colors? The col- not, I'm just not sure about the colors. We're in the Massif Central region right now, which is like homeland of Roman Bardet, which it may is. explain why every single person literally along the side of the road is screaming for Roman Bardet. Yes, and there are signs everywhere. The the Roman Bardet uh, slogan yep. is Sava Bardet. So it means it's sort of a play on words in French. It means sparks will fly. Uh-huh. Uh, Sava is also just sort of a question and an answer. So it's also like, how are you, Bardet? And also sort of good job, Bardet, all at the same time. Many Uh, meanings. I feel like this year is really the coming into his uh, own form, the the, the, like deck out party for Bardet. Because, you know... In the past, he was—you know—he looked like he was 18, and he had the braces, and he looked like a small child, and he was very good. But now, like braces are gone. We've got Man Barday now. Man Barday, yeah. And the fans just freaking love him. I will say, I was on the motorbike the other day, and I saw more Barday signs than anything. That and Direct Energy signs. Yeah. Direct Energy, well, huge, fa- a lot of fans Monsieur of that company. Yeah. So big, fa- big fans of, of Monsieur Vauclair still. Um, guys, we need to get into it today we have a great show for you um we have a discussion about the last three stages of racing i mean when we last left these poor Velenews podcast listeners who i'm sure have not been consuming any other tour de france content other than our podcast they don't know what's happening they fabio aru was in yellow 
Oh, that has changed. <laughs> he is no longer in yellow. Yeah, he's no longer in the yellow jersey. Uh, we also lived in a world that was pre-Dave Brailsford tirade at uh, British Journalists' world. Yes. Oh, what a happy, <laughs> loving world it was. It's just simpler just times. hours ago. Simpler times. And um, finally, we lived in a world before you and I had the pleasure of sitting down with um, Taylor Finney, uh, Nate Brown, um, and some other members of Team Cannondale Draypack. Learning about how the Peloton is actually just cats. Yeah. Coming up, yep. we have a very interesting interview with Taylor Finney talk comparing cyclists to cats. Has there ever been a not very interesting interview with Taylor Finney? Uh, uh, no. Uh, no, guess not. <laughs> uh, so let's get into it. Today, rest day two, we were like going around interviewing cyclists going for, to team hotels and talking to people when all of a sudden uh, <laughs> news surfaced that um, Team Sky had dropped a big fart on this year's Tour de France <laughs> just crop dusted the Tour de France all of cycling news all of cycling news what happened was um, first of all we were told yesterday that Team Sky would not be having a team press conference today and they did not which is kind of weird like for a team that's been sort of avoiding the media all day to not and they didn't do one on rest day number one yep so to not have a, a team press conference like that's that's weird that's strange yeah the british press were not too stoked on that uh doesn't really matter as much for us we don't cover sky quite as closely as the <laughs> british press do but still a bit a little bit strange uh you know for 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 the the team of the leader uh, and a team that has been very controversial over the last year not to hold a press conference. Well, what it does is it suggests that they don't really want questions. Right. So then we got word that actually, no, there's not going to be a press conference, but there's going to be a very short window of press availability. It's going to be a mixed zone press availability. For listeners of the Vell News Podcast who really want some insider baseball in the way that cycling media works, uh, mixed zone is an area where media can group around, elbow each other in the face, and try to get try to just like stick their iPhones in front of riders and have interesting words fall out of their mouths. Usually behind a fence and we're sort of like split into, you know, TV and then radio and then press and very much sort right. of uh, first class, second class. Yeah. Double it's a rigid, class. rigid cast system. It's like Snowpiercer. <laughs> yeah. And we, lowly members of the print slash digital class, are on the bottom. We are the low class. Oh, my, we're the peasants. Yeah. We are so the peasants of the media world. <laughs> so, um, as we understand from a uh, few media reports that surfaced, um, this was for TV and radio only. And, Kaylee, that's significant to me because typically... It's the TV reporters that tend to ask the more fawning questions. They don't ask the tough questions. They are looking for pretty pictures and sound reactions bites. and sound bites. And so digital people were not invited. But oh, we were not invited. And we were definitely not we invited. Actually all, we also didn't ask to go. Yeah. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so apparently um, Cycling News did go. In fact, their reporter, a guy named Barry Ryan, who has written at length about Team Sky over the last year mm -hmm. and have been very critical about their stories involving the Jiffy Bag and their stories involving Bradley Wiggins and the use of these TUEs just showed up. And as the story goes, David Brailsford, principal for Team Sky, saw he was there, told him to leave, told him to just beat it, yep. and then like told him that you know you only write shit about our team. Uh, apologies to listeners of the Villainous podcast with with weak ears. Excuse our French. Excuse our French. <laughs> and um, then just basically like like told the guy to beat it. Told him to stick it up his arse. Stick and, it up his arse. There was some debate previously whether it was actually arse or no. ass that he said. We can't confirm, we can't confirm either, either way pronunciation there. But anyway, you know, this is A, a ridiculous story, but B, like, uh, you know, all humor aside, this is a very troubling story. Um, this, we in the cycling media are hypersensitive to this type of treatment. And we're not just saying this as like haughty a-holes who, are, are. who are in love with ourselves. Like, this is straight out of the playbook that was going on 10 years ago with Lance Armstrong and Johan Bruniel. Um, I've spent a number of uh, days at this year's Tour de France having conversations with journalists about the ways in which um, Armstrong and Bruniel handled the media during this era. And there was a real playbook, and that was you give access to the reporters that are nice to you. They're going to write glowing things about you and that aren't going to ask tough questions. You deny access to those reporters that do ask tough questions. And for those reporters who write things that are hypercritical of your organization, 
you find instances where you can intimidate them, where you can like yell at them or in, intim- public. in public and just like basically let them know, don't come around here. Don't come around here no more. And so, you know, you talk to these reporters, like, you know, Jeremy Whittle, for example. The snake with arms. Known by, known to by, it was called by Armstrong, is the snake with arms. Yeah. He doesn't really look like a snake with arms to me, no, personally. No, he doesn't. No. Very nice, very nice man. He wrote yeah. critically about Lance Armstrong, had his access cut off, and then was referred to as the snake without or snake with arms. Snake with arms, because he has arms. He does have arms. <laughs> we, we can confirm this. I saw his snake arms. Snake without arms, just a snake. Fellow news uh, <laughs> podcast listeners, uh, we apologize. He's a snake with arms. Yeah. Anyway, um, this whole instance with Team Sky seems to be straight out of that playbook, which is, you know, you deny access to people who ask tough questions, newspaper reporters and digital people. Yep. You invite the people that are going to just say nice things about you, TV people and radio people. And if some guy shows up that you don't like, you just scream at them until they go away. Uh, anyway, I'm sure you've seen on Twitter like everyone's up in arms with about this right now and they should be like this is this is not this is bad behavior yeah it's really bad so Barry Ryan is well first of all he's an excellent reporter Uh, you know he does really good work at Cycling News he's done a number of very good stories about Team Sky I think I personally really like Barry uh, you know on a personal level as well as a professional level I think he does really good stuff the stories that really irked Dave Brailsford when I read them I read them more as literally just a list of the things that Team Sky has done and 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 so what this suggests to me is that um well if Brailsford is not happy with a list of the things that his team has done then maybe he should consider the things that his team has done I personally think that uh that sort of publicly naming and shaming Barry in this way sets a really bad precedent. I think it makes Sky look really bad. I think it makes Brailsford look really bad. You know, we may have we may have a bit of a of a sort of media rivalry with Cycling News, but that does not mean we ever want to see a fellow reporter get treated in this way just for doing his job. No. I, think, I think it's pretty shameful. Yeah, I mean, kudos to Cycling News for doing those stories. And um, yeah, a big, well, what the heck are you doing to Dave Brailsford for acting this way? Because the thing is that we've seen this, you know, we see this every now and again in mainstream sports, in politics, in pop culture, where you know you do have a figure who's a public figure, and at a certain point they get fed up with the media and they just crack and they go, for lack of a better word, they go apeshit on them. And it's just like, you can't, you can't do that. If there's one thing that, you know, you have to keep, you have to keep sacred within a um, free and open media is, uh, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't shoo them away. I'm sorry, you know? <laughs> yeah, and particularly, this is bike racing. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're all covering bike racing. This is not, this is not war reporting. Uh, anything said within bike racing's context should not be should really not be bad enough uh, and has never been bad enough to to warrant the kind of treatment that, that barry is getting so yeah i think that's enough talking about, yeah. about us in the media and things like that y- you know yeah, nobody cares about us nobody cares about us but we Nor thought it was an you. important thing to talk about because yeah. this does this affects what you guys read on velonews.com and on cyclingnews.com and everywhere else where you you pick up your cycling media you know there is we have also written negative things about Dave Brailsford and Team Sky. I have personally written negative things about Dave Brailsford and Team Sky. Uh, if I ever got treated in this way, I would I would very much hope that my colleagues within this within this little world would would stand behind me. And and so that's exactly what we are doing for Barry and Cycling News. Yeah, it's going to be a story that we continue to follow through these next few days. All right, moving on. Uh, when we last left the good. Listeners of the Velo News podcast, um, Chris Froome, the mighty Chris Froome, had been kicked out of yellow by Fabio Aru. It was the uphill sprint to Paragoods. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun. Oh, man, such a dramatic stage. And, like, literally, Kaylee, that feels like it was years ago. It was approximately one and a half years ago, yes. Yeah, because, um, well, the next day, we had stage 13 to Foix, which was the much-hyped 101-kilometer punchy short stage. And we saw some dramatics on the final climb the mur de 
Pigueira. Pigueira. The, the, the Thumbtack Hill. It was Thumbtack Hill. <laughs> it was Thumbtack Hill indeed. Yeah. Yep. Uh, where the Thumbtacks attacked Cadell Evans a couple years ago. And there was all the speculation. Mikalanda goes on the attack. Oh, my God. Is he really teammates with Chris Froome? Are they rivals? Oh, my gosh. When are we going to uh, learn the answer to that? And we learned the answer to that. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, stage 15 to uh, Le Puy and Villay. Maybe we, need to, maybe we need to get our waitress to say I that again. I know. We need to get someone to pronounce. We're sorry. Our French pronunciation is podcast. less than ideal sometimes. Yeah. We saw really dramatic moment where right before the Peloton hit the final Cat 1 climb of the day, Chris Froome had a mechanical again. Dun, dun, dun. What, what's up with Chris Froome having these mechanicals at the most crucial moments of these races? It's weird. You know, I've ridden... I've ridden a lot of bike races and have never had a mechanical in the key moment twice in a row like that. It's, yeah. it's, it is very strange. Actually, you know, I wrote a little story for VeloNews.com yesterday about how the this waiting question was now behind us. You know, AG2R kept on the gas even when Froome had this issue. Yeah, so they just, you know, there's the question of do you wait for the yellow jersey or do you keep going? And in this moment, AG2R, they really kept going. They kept the hammer down, yeah. and I, I do. I do think that this this sort of unwritten rule that we that we hemmed and hawed about uh, for for so long about a week ago, I think that that may be a little bit behind us. I mean, we'll you know yet to see what happens in the rest of this race, but I do think that it's been decided within the peloton that when the race is on and the race was most certainly on, Ajitoire was already putting guys deep into the red before this ever happened. I think that uh, there's going to be no more no more waiting in the Tour de France. So again, Chris Froome has his second mechanical at an awful time. Apparently, um, the French broadcaster, Laurent Jalabert, you know, longtime Tour de France racer, uh, was said in the French broadcast sort of sarcastically like, Froome, he always has these mechanicals at the worst possible moment. What's up with that? Well, Ooh. yeah, so, so, so I, you know, when we, I wrote this story about the non-waiting thing, which then people come started coming at me on Twitter about uh, motor doping. Again, because the, 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 the conspiracy theory is that, you know, this guy took two new wheels in key moments of the race. Uh, you know, what's going on? Is this easy swapping to a wheel with a motor or a bike with a motor or something like that? Uh, I can't imagine that that is the case. Uh, just, well, first of all, this doesn't make any sense because why would you drop off a minute on purpose, even if you're going to have a motor, like yeah. you never know. Maybe the motor's broken. You know, it's like they wouldn't risk it. There's, there's just there's no point in them. This compu- this conspiracy, I find I find pretty. Yeah, I mean, absurd. I I definitely regard myself as like a pretty good conspiratorial loon. Like I'm, a, you know, I wear tinfoil hats around my house because you never know when they're going to be reading your brain. But yep. even I, even for me, this one that that conspiracy is a little too far. Yeah, I think that the motor thing is, uh, well. Who knows what happened in the past, but I really don't think that any of the, any of the GC contenders yeah. in this Tour de France are swapping bikes to get a motor. So Miko Kwiatkowski springs into action. God, the, the world's best paid domestique uh, gives Chris Froome his rear wheel, pats him on the butt, sends him on his way. Chris Froome uh, then has Mikkel Nieve pull like crazy to try and catch up to this AGR2, AG2R group. And he's almost there and he's almost there, but he's not quite making it. And this was the moment of truth where Mikkel Landa drops out of the lead group to pace Chris Froome up. And this was confirmation that, okay, Mikalanda is on Team Froome. Controversy has been put to bed. Uh, our talking points earlier in the week about, ooh, Mikalanda, is he Frooming Froome? Like, no, hey, I guess he's not. Still fun stories to write. Uh, yeah, apparently he was ordered back by the team, uh, but he did follow that order, which is, which is highly relevant in this particular instance. He did later say that you know he's working for Chris Froome and wanted Chris Froome to take yellow but it, that he would also like to be on the podium so I think Ooh. we could absolutely see I think we could still see Landa trying to move up he also said that he would follow Contador wherever Contador went so if Contador makes a move we do have those two big stages coming up stage 17 and 18 Glibier and the Isward if Contador makes a go of it I think we could see Landa follow I mean Contador was essentially pulling for Landa the other day and said as much. He said that he would like to keep the Tour de France win in the house, meaning that he would like to keep it with another Spaniard. I think Contador would absolutely work for Landa. Uh, then the question becomes, you know, if Landa is coming close to taking the yellow jersey from Chris Froome in this hypothetical, does he sit up? And yeah, 
not so sure about that. So, crisis averted for Team Sky. Chris Froome remains in yellow. Um, afterwards, there's a lot of chatter about what the other guys in that lead group should have done when Chris Froome dropped. So... Roman Baidey had his teammates pulling like crazy up this climb. It's a Cat 1 climb. And, um, you know, they were setting a real mean tempo. Guys were in the red. But we never saw any of the lead um, GC contenders, you know, Rigo Uran, Roman Bardet, Dan Martin. Um, but we never saw, you know, Fabio Aru or Roman Bardet or Rigo Uran attack, like full-on attack. We saw them... A bit over you know, the top of the climb. But a bit over the top of the climb. Yeah. But, you know... When Froome was trying to catch up, we never saw the guys climb. And um, we had our, our countryman, Greg LeMond, launch just a ferocious take, just like flinging take sauce everywhere, just pushing the, the take button and launching take missiles to the take moon by, by saying like, ah, these guys missed their opportunity to win the Tour de France. So they don't know how to race. They don't know how to race. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, well, actually, I kind of agree, uh, kind of agree with him. So basically, AG2R relied on its domestiques to continue pulling. And the reality is always going to be that Chris Froome is going to catch domestiques. Right. right. Like that, that's not, there's no question about that. So what really needed to happen if they actually wanted to keep Froome distanced and Let's remember here that over the top of that climb was about 24K at sort of rolling terrain into the finish line. A solo rider would have a really hard time catching a group at that point. Uh, if they'd really wanted to keep him distance over the top of the climb, then yeah, Bardet and Aru and Martin, those guys all were on. They all had to go, and they, they had to be the ones pushing on. They had to stop sitting behind, you know, Viermos, the, the rest of the AG2R guys, and, and really take take matters into their own hands and they essentially they, they waited a little bit too long I think so do we think that these guys are racing for the podium are they racing for second and third place right now because I'm with you man I saw that and you know I was like okay 30k that's still a long way to go but if you had the three strongest the th- three strongest guys in that bunch attack and make a go of it especially on flat roads and descents where there's wind you know pa- you know well, and there was pacing that, comes into it there drafting was comes cat into four it too there was that cat four you know like yeah. if if you if those four guys had really pinned it and Froome had not gotten on on the top by the top of the cat one they got a little bit of rollers off the backside uh, but then they had that big cat four and even if Froome caught them somewhere on the flats he'd be even more gassed and then maybe the attack that Bardet made on the on the cat four would have worked as soon as you start extrapolating out it gets a little bit gets a little bit sketchy but nonetheless I think the point is you know they really did they, they relied a little bit too much on teammates when they when they should have just given it a go you know that was the moment to be bold and try to win the Tour de France and I think that they I think they kind of messed up yeah it makes me wonder whether like I said these guys are racing for second and third place or whether there's just a little bit of a lack of confidence amongst the contenders you know these you know Chris Froome is the only one there who's won a Tour de France Um, within that group Fabio Aru is the only one who's won a Grand Tour and uh, let's be honest, it was the Vuelta, and it was kind of a weak Vuelta year. Like, uh, is this a case of um, guys who just don't have the same level of experience and confidence um, sort of seeing an opportunity and just not going for it? Maybe. maybe. I mean, it's hard I, it's, to get into these guys' heads. Yeah, it's tough to say. You know, I, I do think that they would all, clearly they'd all take a tour win, uh, but as you get later and later in the race, they do definitely start thinking about consolidating their own position. And it has to be in the back of their heads. You know, we got four guys within 29 seconds right now. The difference between Chris Froome and Rigo Uran in fourth is 29 seconds. That means one mistake, one small error is all it takes to be off the podium. Chocolate medal. No one wants a chocolate no medal. No one wants a chocolate medal. <laughs> the Tour de France. Oh, God. Nobody wants it. And so, you know, they, yeah, they are going to be a little bit careful, you know. Who's going to be the guy that really puts in the effort on that Cat 1 climb when it could potentially then blow you up and all of a sudden you just lost 45 seconds on the rest of the guys on the podium? Your chance at the podium is now almost gone. All right. Well, speaking of mistakes, we need to talk about the biggest mistake in the Tour de France thus far. Um, That one was the mistake made by Fabio Aru on stage 14 into Rodez. You know, this was the day that I was on the motorbike following the Peloton. And, um, you know, it was a lumpy stage, a stage that we called for the breakaway. 
But the thing is that the run into Rodez was windy and twisty, twisty and narrow. The, ra- the, the road went from normal road to less than one lane, narrow, twisty, all the way to the finish and finished with a uh, 750-meter climb to the finish Punchy. line. Punchy yeah. climb. You'd think this would be a stage that people would really want to have good positioning. And in fact... I think the tour came through here two years ago. Yeah, we the exact, to, yeah. exact same finish two years ago into Rodez when t- when uh, Greg Van Avermaet won. And actually, Dave Brailsford, well, when I talked to him after the race, he, he said very clearly, yeah, we, you know, we went and looked at that video over and over and over again the morning of, of that stage and looked at where the splits happened and how they happened and all these different things. They were very well prepared, and that... that Proved to be that proved to be true, and it proved to be enough to take back the yellow jersey. So these guys, Team Sky, gets a, a radio from uh, Kirienka, who's yep. taking a big pull and says he's dropping back through the peloton. Is like, whoa, Fabio Aru is like literally hanging on the back of the peloton, which is just dumb. I'm sorry, it's just like a bad move. Like yeah. if you are a GC contender and it's a windy, twisty, crazy finish that ends with an uphill sprint, like you might want to think about moving up. I mean, every time, all you have to do is ask a cat three. Yeah, you know. The Cat 3 knows. Cat 3 Move does up. know. What What is everyone on the side of the Cat 3 crit yelling? Move up! Move exactly. up! Oh, my God. <laughs> it, the thing is, is, though, in a Cat 3 crit, how... How does how do you move up when everyone moves up? I think it's it's like it's just one of those like an Escher painting, you know? It's just like everyone is moving up. Well, that's part of the problem in the Tour de France as well. That it is the absolute that there is one place where a Cat Three crit and the Tour de France are exactly the same, and that's and that was really Aru's problem. He he didn't have a team to pull him up. Well, actually, his team tried, and he just sort of fell off of them. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to really pin the blame on either either party there uh, the team or Aru himself I'm more inclined to say that yeah Aru should sort of take care of himself in this instance he should have been farther up he just lost more time in this silly little Massey Central stage than was gained or lost across the entire Pyrenees yeah so he ends up losing I believe 25 seconds and you know the way that they measure gaps it's a little tricky on stages like this because you take the time at the front of the group that you're in right and then if there's more than a one second gap i believe uh so for flat stages it's been extended to three i'm i would have to actually go check whether it was one or three for this particular stage but the point stands is that you yeah essentially you get you get penalized for the entire distance of the of the group in front of you so you could actually there could be actually a very small gap between that group and your group yeah but you're time is taken from the first rider in your group first rider in the, in the group in front that's how he lost so much time so you could conceivably have a group that is 20 seconds long of riders riding in a row and then oh two second gap there and then it's that's your gap 22 it's not seconds. two seconds yeah. it is 22 seconds yep. and i think that's exactly what happened to aru which is unfortunate for him but that's why you ride near the front that is the whole point that is why all these all these gc teams oh, spend so much energy keeping their guys up there after the stage i talked with michael valgren who is aru's team at an astana and i was there for the now infamous um tv interview where um the tv interviewer asked him or Basically, Valgren didn't know they had lost the jersey. The TV interviewer tells him, yeah, you lost the jersey. And Valgren just goes, oh, good. <laughs> um, a little too honest, I think. A little too honest. But it does uh, make you think that like maybe Astana, like I'm sure Aru was very bummed to lose the jersey, as was Astana. But maybe some of those domestiques looked at the next two stages, looked at stages you know, 15, 16 and 17, yeah. and just thought, oh, God, I do not want to defend against Team Sky across these huge stages. Across the Massive Central, yeah, and I think that it's important to remember here that the Massive Central, people sort of, I think if you've never been here, you probably just sort of have this picture in your head of sort of a big, open, high plateau. Uh, no, this thing is lumpy. It's super, super, super lumpy. It is, it's it's essentially, uh, it's mountains in reverse, so you're up on this on this high plateau. It's It sort of peaks off at a at 2,500 feet, 3,000 feet, and then you have these giant valleys that guys drop into. And so the, the last couple stages have been anything but easy. And and uh, 
Tuesday stage is going to be anything but easy. So, you know, that's that catches us up to speed, which is that we still have a very tight battle for yellow. Mm-hmm. But Chris Froome is, you know, he's in the driver's seat right now. He is racing for that time trial where he knows he will probably be the strongest guy. Um, and I think his chase back on after the mechanical showed that he's the strongest rider in the race. Yeah. I think that's an important point to make, actually, is that he, he went, he gained 45 seconds on a bunch of guys going essentially full gas. So maybe we should just list off some takes here. Rapid fire take. Take number one. Yeah, those GC guys missed an opportunity on stage 14. Uh, take number two. Fabio Aru, position yourself better. Yeah, man, go to bike racing school. He needs to go to bike racing finishing <laughs> school, you know? That yep. was really surprising to me. I mean, Postgraduate he, degree in bike racing. He, like, chopped up uh, Tom Dumoulin the other year in the in the Welta on that like super hard stage showed some real like bike racing ac- acumen. And then this time he just like full on, he turns in the science test and just <laughs> gets a D minus. <laughs> just like, she's like, sorry, Fabio, Ugh. you do not know anything about, uh, freshman year biology. I got an eight on a chemistry test one time out of a hundred. Ooh, yeah. you, that's a Fabio Aru score. That's why I'm a reporter <laughs> yeah. and not a chemist. That's the Fabio <laughs> Aru stage 14 of bio tests um another take hey you know what i'm starting to come around on this year's tour route like the whole like teeny tiny uh, yeah. gaps like a week ago i was complaining all oh, these flat sprint stages blah, blah 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 and now it's like it's you know battle of the seconds i agree to an extent i think that the race has actually been very very good for the second half and i think that people will remember this race as a very good race because it's been so so very tight and we and, and that is it's absolutely how it, how it was designed to keep it very tight However, I think a couple of these pure sprint stages, and there are a lot of them in this race. I mean, Marcel Kittle could potentially win six or seven stages by the end of this race. That should tell you all you need to know about how many really flat stages there are. I think a couple of those could have been turned into more interesting stages, you know the Roubaix stage of a couple of years ago, for yep. example, or, you know, they, they had a finish in in Liège. Why not give us a little bit of Liège, best on Liège finish instead of another... Flat Liège, what the heck? Flat Liège. Like they literally, they had to go searching for the flattest roads in this entire part of the country in order to get that finish. I think that a couple more sort of Sagan-esque, Matthews-esque stages would have been good. Flat Liège is like going to Flanders and ordering wine. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah. It's just like, hey, here I'm again. Uh, yeah, I'd like a nice uh, nice heavy red wine. Or going to France and ordering pizza. Yeah, we've done some of that. We've made that mistake. Don't go to, don't order pizza in France. Yeah. French go, pizza. Go to Italy. Yeah. Pizza. Not great. Okay, I have a screaming hot take here. Uh, my screaming hot take, man, everyone everyone should be like me and be a become have been a new fan of Dan Martin. Become a oh, huge yeah. fan of Dan Martin. You know, he loses a minute 15 on stage nine. He injures his back. And since then, he has just fought and clawed for little teeny tiny gaps, just seconds here and there, wherever he could. Stage 13, on the run to the foie. And he gets dropped because he has to set this huge tempo because he's so injured he can't get out of, out of the saddle. And he catches back on, attacks on the downhill, gets nine seconds there. Stage 15 coming into Le Puyen Valet. You know, he's in this group and then attacks over the climb, gets into a uh, uh, some guys from the day's breakaway, toes them to line, gets 14 more seconds. You know, Dan Martin is this guy, he's scrappy. He's real scrap. He's a scrapper. Um, and, and that's why, I don't know, I've become a huge fan of the Panda Bear. Even if uh, he's been a little salty in some of these post-race finishes, finishing yeah, so interviews, he's now one twelve off of yellow, and in the last couple stages has regained more than that, about about one fifteen, I believe. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you can't you can't say, oh well, he would be in in yellow. That that doesn't really work because they may not have let him go quite as easily if he had been very close. However, it is indicative. That Dan Martin is actually, he's a, he's a great candidate for this particular course. This course is going to be decided in these small moments. At least thus far, that's what it looks like. It's not going to be big attacks in the mountains. It's not even going to be time trials. It's going to be decided in these very, very small moments in between. We've had more time gained and lost on these stages with a bunch of Cat 3s, maybe a one Cat 1, than we have in the HC stages. I think that's very, very important to remember going into this last week. And Dan Martin is perfect yeah, I actually uh, I have some audio from Dan Martin. I chatted with him uh, after stage 15. Um, he was on his trainer warming down. I had to like 
reach my arm over all these journalists to get some I actually I had to use my you attached your microphone to a selfie stick to a selfie stick yeah <laughs> listeners of the Villainous Podcast should take note that we are innovators here at the Villainous Podcast we combine audiovisual gear to bring the audio to you is, is selfie stick an, a piece of audiovisual gear the visual gear all right yeah, sure <laughs> anyway let's let's listen to Dan Barton I don't I don't I don't I very rarely make a plan you know it's just opportunities and we uh, when when Simon attacked on the Yates attacked on the climb I saw everybody was on the limit and after the downhill everybody kind of stalled so I was a bit afraid because there were so many teammates left because obviously there was one Ajaz Azair guy and Lando was there for Chris and I thought uh, just I knew it was a lot of downhill to the finish so I just if I got a gap it'd be difficult to come back so uh, yeah I took, a, took advantage of the opportunity and just saw the, saw the opening and went Five contenders in one minute, one minute twelve. Uh, how are you gonna face this third week of racing? Oh, with tired legs, I think. But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll just we'll, we'll take it day by day. And just, I think normally you see bigger gaps in the final week. I'm sure it's not gonna be one minute between the top six in the in Paris. So we'll just keep uh, concentrated and keep focused. And hopefully it's not me that has a bad day. Dan, yesterday it seemed as though you'd just be content to get to the rest day, give yourself another day to recover from your back injuries, but it didn't work out like that, did it? Yeah, I, I seem to have been nipping away time every every day this week, so yeah, it's been a, yeah, it's just taking advantage of the situation, as I was saying, just, I learned the hard way last year that every second counts at the Tour by obviously being six seconds there off seventh place on GC and being ninth, so yeah, it's a, uh, just a case of taking advantage of I mean it works in my favour that there's so many guys so close on GC they're kind of looking at each other and because I'm a little bit further back they're kind of not wary of me but uh, yeah I'm getting closer now and you had a front row view of how AG2R tried to capitalise on Froome's mechanical I mean how do you think they played it? Well, they attacked before Chris's mechanical you know so that was probably one of the hardest parts of the tour so far i got to say they were going oh, we were flying and everybody was already in the red at the bottom of the climb and then it was kind of, oh, I mean, I dare say, but I think Chris is the only guy who could have come back from that mechanical. We were going so fast, you know, so it's really, uh, yeah, they weren't, they definitely weren't, I don't see they were taking advantage of the mechanical, they were just, they were doing their race, and it was unfortunate for Chris, I don't know what happened, but yeah, look, I'm happy he came back, because he don't want the tour to be decided like that. Dan, you put out a tweet saying, you know, it's crazy you're still here at the Tour de France after that crash. Next week you can dream big. How big are you dreaming? Uh, I, I don't want to think of it like it, you know, just take it day by day. I mean, it's I, uh, the best way of tackling a Grand Tour is always take it day by day. Because if you think too far ahead, you, uh, right, if you're looking at stage 20 when you're on stage 3, you think That's a, that seems like a hell of a long way away, you know. So, yeah, we're uh, yeah thinking about the rest day tomorrow. Enjoy that first, and then, uh, yeah, we'll see what the rest of the week holds. We saw you getting off the bike a couple of days ago, like an old pro. Getting off the bike, bent back. How is your back feeling right now? Oh, it's a million times better. That was actually the, that night, after that video was taken, we, uh, we, we made a lot of progress because the swelling had finally gone down. We were able to actually straighten me out. And so I was uh, less of an old man and more, yeah, more the old 30-year-old or whatever I am, I actually am, you know. And, so yeah, the last couple of days, the improvement has been huge. And today, I've got to say, I was probably back to 90, 95%. So hopefully the rest day tomorrow will do me good. And the Alps, we can really, uh, yeah, I'll actually feel really good on the bike again and not just have the legs, because I've had the, had the legs this week, just haven't, had the, haven't been comfortable. Uh, and if you listen to social media, which is always a, a dubious task, people are calling you the hero of this year's tour. Do you feel like that? Oh, I just race my bike, you know, it's kind of, it's, I don't pay attention to any of that. It's just. I'm just doing what I love and uh, yeah, that's why I race the way I do as well because just tactically it's fun, you know, I just see, see opportunities and take advantage and, and race hard, you know, and uh, yeah, but we'll get to Paris and then maybe I'll reflect on the, on the great job I've done, but until then, yeah, we'll just, we'll just focus on what we're doing still. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Is the tour going to be one on these small gains like this or on a big attack on Olivier or Isouard? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think it's going to be... It's quite possible that the tour will be lost rather than won this year. You know, obviously Chris has got a decent gap now, and I'm sure if he gets to the time trying Marseille with the gap he's got, he'll be very content, you know. So it's up to everybody else to attack him. But as I say, I mean, 
you've ever bad down the glibio these what you can lose minutes so i think everybody's gonna be very wary of that could lead to a negative race but as you say that i mean guys also want to win the tour de france so it's uh yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting last week. So, yeah, I mean, like he said, he feels like he's getting better. You know, he's not the same Dan Martin who was limping around after stage 12. Uh, it sounds like, I don't know, I think he's going to make a charge for it. I think he's definitely a man to watch in this last week. I think he has a pretty good shot at the podium. Then again, we have a lot of guys who have a really good shot at the podium. Yeah. And my personal, my personal thought is that we're going to end up with Froome, Bardet, and I think Uran on that podium. Strong take. Yeah, because wow, this last week we do get into sort of sort of some more traditional Tour de France with these big, big, big Alpine stages over the Glibier, up the Isward. That suits Dan Martin a little bit less and suits the sort of more traditional Tour riders. I'm thinking mostly Froome and Bardet a little bit more. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna go one up though. I'm gonna say Froome. Uran Barde. I think Uran uncorks one in this time trial. It's funny, you know, he's been, he's had like such a low profile. Well, for us for anyway, during this, for a while, for yeah. this year's Tour de France. If, if listeners of the podcast should note that whenever you walk past the um, Cannondale Draypack team bus, there are 11 billion <laughs> Colombian fans out front screaming for Rigo. Rigo, 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 Rigo. <laughs> Poor Matt Bowden, uh, their, their communications chief. He's just like exhausted and exacerbated he, he's just he just looks like these fans are just running him around they're everywhere yeah they basically they just they just travel between uh nairo and rigo they just go back and forth and the journalists i can't tell if they're journalists or fans i think they're a little bit of both. both yeah yeah well that's sort of the normal colombian way yeah so i think that's going to be my podium which you know i guess that's our final take of this evening is picking our podium we both think Froome's going to win. I think Froome's going to win. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's been kind of unlucky with these mechanicals, but I do <laughs> yeah. think anything barring like a 747 landing on him <laughs> midway through a stage, yeah, even I mean, then I think he could still win. Uh, I, you know, mostly it's because I think that unless he loses quite a bit of time over these over these stage 17, stage, stage 18, he's going to win the time trial, at least in terms of the GC men. So, I, I, you know, Barde needs 30, 40 seconds minimum. Uh, going into that TT, Uran probably needs 15-20 minimum. Uh, it's just, there's just there's not a lot of pathways to victory for those nope. guys at this point. Well, Kaylee, I think that the good people listening to the podcast today are probably sick of hearing us yammer on about this stuff. I think they want to hear some interesting interviews. And boy, we got a good one for you. You know, we were at the Cannondale JPEG team bus today for uh, Resting Number 2. And we had a long chat with Mr. Taylor Finney. We talked about cycling, life. We talked about cats. Talked about cats. We mostly talked about cats, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just, let's get to it. Let's hear what let's old Taylor right had in. to say. You know what I imagine cycling, actually, now? This is, this is my grand realization of the Tour de France. We are just a herd of cats. Have you ever seen a herd of cats? No. We're all cats. We're all very feline. We're all, like, in our own head. We even kind of look like cats with the way that we move. I imagine cyclists as, like, we're kind of like, we're like jungle cats, you know? We're just... But we're forced to be in this herd because of this thing that we call the wind. We have to stay. We have to stay together. But no one wants to be around each other. Mm. So we kind of. You'll have like talks. You'll have small talk here and there. But you know that it's like just to pass this time. And anything that you say is not. No one's actually listening to you. And no one's actually saying anything to you that's of real any real value. So once I realized that we're just a herd of cats, I've, I've been able to just kind of laugh at, at all of the little things. For example, yesterday we were kind of fighting with Movistar for the, the wheel of AG2R within the group, and this is like 100k to go. And you know, there's this kind of like, I, there's like this I was here first sort of thing that exists within cycling. We're just total bullshit. <laughs> like, like the I was here first, does that doesn't exist anywhere in the world. But in cycling, it's like, actually it does exist everywhere, almost everywhere in the world. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's kind of this thing where like, eventually it's not gonna be yours and, and you know it. And so there's, there's, there's these little quarrels that happen that are like, 
these really passive aggressive kind of like who can make it the most awkward for the longest amount of time and so you're sort of you could be fighting for this wheel but you're not going to get aggressive about it because you're in the middle of the race and that's not the time to be aggressive but you're just kind of you're just passive aggressive about it you might do like a little chop maneuver sort of here you might like take them out wide in a corner and then they do the same thing to you and it's like it's if you're watching the two kind of thresholds of like inner anger of the two riders that just start to build and build and build and then at some point one of them is like ah you know lets off this like as if that means anything ah then they just and then their team goes you know eight people behind <laughs> it's super awkward dude <laughs> Cycling is really awkward because it's an awkward it's an awkward motion to begin with. It's something that you even when you're the most comfortable at it, like you're a professional cyclist, you're still very aware that like at any point in time just the one little maneuver could just send you catapulting into asphalt, which is not something that was made for bodies to hit. It was something that was made to withstand time, you know, bodies now. So you have that in the back of your mind at all times, like, you know, I could, could eat it at, at any point in time, but I, I don't want to be in the wind right now, I don't, and I'm just kind of annoyed. And this guy is in my way, and but I've talked to him like three or four times, and he seems like a nice dude. And one time I got drunk with him at the end of this one race, and we had this really nice time together. But I don't know if he remembers that. So you have this whole thing that plays out in your mind, and then he's having the same thing playing out in his mind. Cats, bro. Cats fighting in the wind. Well, I've known Chris for ever since I started racing. Yeah. I met him in uh, in Italy, like when I first moved there. Before he even before he was doing his thing, we we got, we were in the Gruppetto in California together. I remember his. I remember being next to him in the Gruppetto in California. We we're going up Mount Baldi, and my heart rate was like 150. I was so, just sub threshold. And his, his heart rate was like 85. <laughs> and I remember looking over and just being like, what are you doing here, dude? <laughs> like, oh, I'm sick. They're like, yeah, but what's wrong with you? What's wrong with your heart? <laughs> it's like almost half, beating at half the speed of mine. Um, but I honestly never see Chris at this race because he's a He's always in the front and he's always like being shepherded around. Um, I've wanted to go up and tell him anything, but I can't <laughs> because he's, he's on the top of the cat totem pole. It's true. And I, uh, I'm, we're fighting against Movistar behind AG2R, so we're not going to go as far as the top of the cat totem pole. It's a rigid cast system. It's like Snowpiercer or something <laughs> like I mean, I definitely have found a lot of love for the Tour de France, which, if I think about it, the only reason that I wanted to start riding my bike, other than the fact that I liked riding my bike, the reason I wanted to race my bike when I was 15 years old was because I went to the Tour de France. And then... Being on BMC, I was just never really, I'd never really be a part of that team because it was very elite and it was pretty climber focused. And I also had, you know, some other different goals while I was there. And then obviously I broke my leg, so I sort of forgot about the Tour de France. But I always watched it, you know. Like, if anything, doing the Tour de France, I miss being able to watch it because I miss that month of July where you just wake up in. Boulder, and you watch the Tour de France, and then you just go out and train. Like I love that. I feel kind of the same way. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Um, so I feel like if I'm gonna miss, I feel like if if anything, I, I'm I'm kind of like I'm I'm taking that that the energy of like the people who are are doing that, and I'm. 
who are waking up and, and watching this thing and going riding and like that that's me but instead of me being there I'm here so like how do I bring that kind of energy to those people how do I let those people know that like I'm one of them you know I'm doing this thing and I'm racing this thing and we have Rigo who's like has a shot for going to the podium I was in the polka dot jersey but like I'm I would love to be watching this on TV as well so I've been having a lot of fun like with these NBC diaries he knows yeah and just like just putting it out just putting it out there like hey I'm this is me I'm I'm we I'm weird but every everybody's weird like if you allow yourself to be weird if you allow yourself to be yourself you, you're a weirdo and uh, just because I'm a, a bike racer and just because I'm in the Tour de France if anything that makes me more of a weirdo <laughs> like there's something inside of me there's something inside of most of these these guys that is typically suppressed <laughs> but if you let it if you let it let it come out it's everybody in this group they're, they're all a little a little crazy we don't get that that often I mean we don't see that that often yeah. do, do you see it more riding with them then man honestly no you see it like you see it when the race is over you see it like at the after party right. you see it because everybody's also playing this cycling is historically has always been very much of like a bluffing game you know like the way that you ride your bike is very telling of how you are feeling your body language as a bike racer if you think of like Kopi and and like all these guys in the past you know they had like these quote-unquote tells right it's like if Kopi is like left vein on his left calf popped out like he was about to get dropped you know like that was the time to attack him so within cycling there's been this thing that's driven into all young cyclists of like never show any weakness always kind of you put this wall up and when you get dropped you get dropped but but you don't want anybody to know when that's going to be and as someone who has gotten dropped way more than I've not gotten dropped <laughs> I've realized it doesn't, it doesn't matter like if people know that I'm going to get dropped or not one thing I was talking to Rigo about last night is like cycling is simple and this is why I love Rigo because he said if you're good you're going to be in the front and you're going to have a chance to win if you're bad you're not like plain and simple there's none of this bluffing you're not playing any mind games with yourself you're not playing any mind games with anybody else like what's going to happen is going to happen so you might as well just be yourself and express yourself while you're doing it think of thomas vocler and how, how wild that dude looks like on a bike <laughs> you know that's but that's why people love that guy and um yeah and that's what people want to see too like i'm tired of I'm tired of being in a sport that where, where people feel like they need to not express themselves. Because if you live a life without expression, at some point that expression is going to come up and slap you in the face. And it might be too late for you to understand what it is and then you have some sort of a mid-length crisis, you know? But if you learn to express yourself while you're doing something that you're really good at, and you do it in the in the ways that just come naturally you're gonna have a lot more fun with it and people are gonna be able to connect with what you're doing which is ultimately the only reason why I feel like that fundamental why of professional athlete is so that you can inspire other people to be active and to follow their own individual passion uh, okay well what do you, what do you think about that comparison cyclists are like herding cats uh, I think it's absolutely correct well. I think it's absolutely I actually you know we were sitting there in the interview and 
Taylor, Taylor he, he always has good interviews, right? That's but true. I think this one was particularly excellent. It really made me, it actually made me sort of reconsider the way that I look at the Peloton. Uh, I'm going to see them all with ears and tails from here on out. Well, what I really thought was telling, too, was talking about the, like, the, the social awkwardness that goes on in the Peloton. <laughs> Which we've sensed for quite a long time. Yeah. You definitely get a sense that some of these riders are not the most socially adept human beings on the planet. Or just the, like, the weird, awkward situations that bike racing forces you into, where you're like, yeah, 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 I know I'm not giving you this wheel, and I know you're right next to me, <laughs> but I'm just going to pretend like you're not there. Like, to me, that reminds you of riding the subway in New York City, where you're just like, yep, yep, I know that I'm not going to let you get in front of me because I'm competitive and sorry. Um, let's get on to our next interview here. You know, this guy's been doing our audio um, diaries for us throughout the week, Nate Brown, but we just figured, you know, we're here. Let's just have a chat. Let's bring in an interview, a Nate Brown interview. I've never had this pressure before, and if you look at this team, I mean, we have Andrew, we have Roland, we have Simon Clark, we just endless talent on this bus and when they go nate you are rigo's right hand man in the mountains you have to stay with rigo as long as you can it's a lot of pressure like i was whoa like i've never been in this situation i've been kind of the quiet under the radar rider who i do my job the best i can do it but i've never been like nate you have to be there the last man we need you and I've really enjoyed it. Like, I, I mean, yes, it's a lot of pressure, but at this end of the day, I'm just riding my bike, and it's just I happen to be riding really well, and I think, you know, I'm just happy that the team has trusted me with this role, and I hopefully we can take it to Paris on the podium. This is my fourth Grand Tour, and I, like, I love comparing the stats to every Grand Tour, like which one's harder and which one's easier, and... and Yes, we still have another six days to go, but as of right now, this has been the hardest two weeks of racing I've done to date. And it's like, I mean, it's not even close. And so I think this is the top, this is it. This is the top year. If it gets any harder, well then, <laughs> count me out. But it's been a really taxing two weeks. And like, I mean, yeah, the, the stats show that. Oh, clearly, the moment for me was short stage, the 101-kilometer stage, first climb. I suffered so much on that first climb. I came off the back. There was maybe 60 guys left. Like, I thought I could make it over the first climb, no problem, and I was just suffering, and that was the moment it hit me. It's just like, I'm so tired. Like, part part of in your brain, it creeps up. It's like, you can't do this anymore. You just got to, like, push that aside because it's just like... You don't, once that takes over, like, you just don't want that coming on. So I had to just be like, push it aside, like, no, you'll be okay, Nate, you'll be okay. But I was suffering that day, the whole day. What about the moment where you have just really marveled at your legs, where you felt just the best, like you're flying, like, you know, you're, you're really strong? Uh, I think it was stage 12 where I ended up 22nd, and it was a six hour day, and we hit the big hc climb and i'm still there there's 20 guys left i'm still there i'm like kudos legs let's keep this going like i couldn't believe it like even it was it was a surprise to me that i was still with these guys so far into the race and i ended up having a great result and i was very impressed with myself <laughs> to say the least that was the hardest day of the tour we think Right. For me, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look on data-wise and how I felt, yes, it was the hardest day for me. The day that Aru lost to Jersey, we knew that was going to be a tricky day. And I, my goal or my job was to take Rigo basically to that climb in a really good position. And there was a little climb before it. And, and I just rode up, you know, the side of the peloton and with Rigo on, on my, my wheel and Simon on my wheel and, and dropped them off. And then I said, all right, boys, it's you. And that, for me, that's so satisfying. I get more satisfaction doing my job like that than I think I do from my own success because I love helping other people succeed. I was telling my girlfriend this actually, like I've done three Grand Tours now and no one's really said a word to me in the US. <laughs> Nothing. And then all of a sudden I do the tour and every single person has come out and be like, we're following you, we're watching the tour, we're so proud of you. And it's just like, it just shows how much the tour is like viewed in the US. It's just how big it actually is. It's like, you do the tour 
and you've made it in the U.S. So non-cycling people, like, that's it. You've made it. You've reached the top. Well, and you also managed to stand on the podium in, like, what, day three? Right, <laughs> right, day three of my first Grand Tour. That probably helps. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it, I think that's the biggest thing I've noticed is just, just the amount of, like, support and just encouragement I've gotten out of the U.S. Mm. And you're just like, wow, it's a lot. And yeah, the stress level like that. I'll stick by that one. Even in the peloton, like you can just tell the riders are so stressed and on edge, and they're getting pressure from their teams to perform, and everyone just wants to be at the front. Oh, it's a nightmare out there. <laughs> All right, well, man, I loved hearing from both those guys. You know, Nate, he's had such a good tour. You know, hearing that stuff about him, uh, you know, having some really impressive moments as a domestique. That's yeah. got to be a huge confidence boost. Yeah, I mean, both Nate and Taylor are tour rookies, and they've had pretty fantastic first tours to France. They were both in the polka dot jerseys early in the race. You know, you can't really ask for much more than that. And then Nate Brown has been, he's really been the most important rider for Rigo. And as he said in that in that interview there, that was, uh, it can be a little bit stressful. He can, a lot of pressure on his shoulders. You know, when, when Charlie Wigelius, the director of Sportive over there, points at you and says, you are the guy for the high mountains, that, uh, that can be a little bit tough, but he's he's reacted really impressively. I think looks really thin. He's very thin. Very thin. Yeah, he's like he's got little tiny calves and like yeah. little tiny arms. Small yeah. features. Turns out watts per kilo, kilo part is still important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, my watts per kilo right now after uh, w- traveling around eating a lot of fromage. My watts per uh, beer à pression. Yeah, quite good though. That's true. Very good beer yeah. and fromage. Uh, lastly, Kaylee, we need to hear. From our intrepid uh, diarist, uh, George Bennett. You know, he took last week off. He had a rough day in, that was the uh, Mieux de Piguerre, Piguerre yeah. where yeah. he got dropped. But he's still battling for the top 10. Yeah, George, you know, he came into this race really wanting a top 10. He was sitting right on the edge for a long time, 8th, 9th, 10th. Uh, he's been bumped just outside it now which is obviously unfortunate for him we were supposed to have a diary from him the other day that was also the day that he lost his top 10 this is a guy who is very relaxed very chill and yet that day felt pressure unlike he had ever felt in his entire career uh so today we asked him to just submit another diary maybe talk a little bit about that let's listen in so we made it uh wrist day number two Slightly less enthusiastic than I was at resto number one, <laughs> but no, I'm actually um, I am very excited for this last week and very happy that the last two days are behind me. Especially yesterday, that was one of those those nasty days that you're just not ready for. And next minute, bloody one team hits at full gas through some small roads, and the motorbikes don't get out of the way, and peloton splits into pieces, and we have a uh, battle royale for for 50k and and that was uh, that was really one of the hardest stages i think it didn't help uh, i've come down with a little bit of a bug nothing serious hopefully but uh or any any difference at this stage i just feel you feel it all and and you can't have anything go wrong so very happy it was a rest day it's been a mixed week for me um we had stage 14 13 to foie not sure um and I didn't make the front group, which was suddenly a drama. I was there with eight of the best riders in the world and fell off on the last kilometre of the climb, just couldn't hold on, and then proceeded to ride 25 kilometres down the valley by myself and lose somewhere around two minutes, which, uh, yeah, probably before was back in, you know, last year was was still a good ride. People, you know, it was not bad to be there with those guys, but... Yeah, when you're riding for a top ten, it's it's not uh, not ideal, <laughs> and um, I'm trying to make it up. And and yeah, yesterday was good. I made a bit of time back on Quintana, and I just gotta hope that hope that they suck more than I do in this last week. It, it's actually come to that stage where nobody's good, nobody's fresh, and if they tell you they're fresh, well, they're talking out their ass. I think um, rest day slightly calmer than the last rest day. Um, good pizza for lunch just went and had a few passes with a rugby ball around the park with a couple of schoolmates and yeah put the feet up now lying in bed Um, about to head to a massage very key went for a spin still managed to do 700 metres of climbing and that was the sprint train that was responsible for that so blame them 
tomorrow we've got some fireworks out of the start gate, but hopefully nothing serious. And then hold on to your steak and cheese, kids, because, uh, yeah, heading to the Alps. I'm excited and, and see you there. Man, I love that guy. That guy, I mean... You know, he had us cracking up at Tor California. We've we pretty much liked him ever since. Yeah, yeah. He um, he wasn't afraid to like drop some profanity in the Ventura, um, <laughs> California press conference. What was there was a fr- what was the phrase that the Twisted local nut. reporter Twisted Nut? That's right. Ah, oh, mate. <laughs> some someone asked him how like how fast he went in the time trial or yeah. something like that, and his response was, "Ah, oh, mate, it just." <laughs> just twisted a nut. Oh god! Like that. Yeah. And this local, this lo- poor local reporter, local sports reporter, turned around to me after was like, "What does that yeah. mean? Is that a bike racing idiom?" Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Everyone says it. Bike racing. Yeah. 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 Print that. Totally. Put that in your story. <laughs> no. They say it all the time. Uh, well, Kaylee, I think that might be it for us. Um, do we have a final question of the evening here? Um, if you can't, if you don't want to eat pizza in France. What do you recommend the good listeners of the Vel News podcast eat when they come Ooh. to France? You know, it's hard to go wrong with a good salad chevre show. Yeah. Chevre show. I haven't had one yet, but the quiches have been looking amazing, quiche, too. Very good. I've had a couple of very good quiches. Uh, the chevre around here in this particular region is quite good. Also, yeah. the lentils in this region. Oh, my gosh. We need to talk about the lentils. Le Puyen Valet, known for yeah. its lentils. We had some yesterday at Press Buffet. Wonderful lentils. Top press buffet of the tour so I, far. I will Five ad- stars. I will admit, though, those lentils, while they were g- good going down, boy, they, they made me pull a Brails- Brailsford and just uh, <laughs> fart all over the tour car. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on com. Subscribe to the Velonews Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you are there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Please, please, please. We can't, can't emphasize that enough. Become a fan of the Velonews on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Velonews. The Velonews Podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by the competitor group. Thoughts and opinions expressed by the Velonews Podcast are those of the individual, even Greg LeMond's hot takes. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. Soul Drums.